The Ringer Reality TV Podcast is the home for all things unscripted TV. The feed will feature challenge recaps with Johnny Bananas, Bachelor in Paradise recaps from Amelia Wedemeyer, and a weekly survey of the reality TV landscape with Juliet Littman and Callie Curry. And much more coverage across the reality spectrum from Survivor to Below Deck to Selling Sunset. Check out the Ringer Reality TV Podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line as always, it's Andy Greenwald. It's cold. It's it is cold, cold. Buddy. It's chilly in Los Angeles. It is Thursday in America. Andy and I are going to spend the majority of this show talking about what I think it's okay to say at the top here is the best television show of 2021. It's Station Eleven. The first three episodes have gone up on HBO Max. Uh, this is my easily my favorite show of the year, pretty much. Um, I got a chance to get through this season. There will be no spoilers about any episodes past episode three in this conversation, but what Andy and I are going to do is chat a little bit at the beginning, do a little general Station Eleven talk if you just want to hear us chat about it. We want to make the case to get you on board. And then we will, like Kaya will drop a big clanging klaxon or the Chernobyl music, depending. And uh, we will then pivot to talking with full spoilers. Yeah, about the first three episodes, episodes which went up. And so I'm excited to do that, man. It's been a long time. I I haven't felt this this kind of blown away by a show in a while. Uh, We're really lucky. We came right out of succession. And, you know, we had that as a weekly, as a weekly experience for ourselves and then to go into this and this is kind of got that hbo max hulu style three two 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 one like release style and i think over the holidays that's going to be <laughs> isn't, like isn't that the home and home for the western conference finals it, that's, like, isn't yeah, that that's like wait why yeah. are they getting on a plane back to san antonio uh but yeah like it i think people hopefully will will find it hopefully they'll love it as much as as we do but we'll get into all that andy how are you doing man post success how are you doing i'm good i think um you know, you should drag us, America, if we ever say that we're chilly here in the City of Angels. But it was in the 30s. And I just feel angry. Is that a cool feeling to have? <laughs> Is that normal? Should I save this for therapy later? I, I just feel cheated. I like at least as, you know, as democracy and uh, the healthcare system crumbles all around me. I just like to feel the sun on my face. You know what I mean? Is that is that wrong? If that's wrong, I don't want to be right. No, it's just funny because it's like, you know, we we get through these brutal summers here. And I know that you lap up those one-on-one dry heat days, but it's like, I'll I'll take a couple of 30-degree days here. It's, ah, the only problem is, is like they didn't build these houses to be in 30 degrees. 
So, so I feel like that's basically like a strip of like origami paper holding up like. That's my body you're talking about. They didn't, they didn't build this corpus to withstand this anymore. You know what I mean? Like my people fled the cities that have nothing but consonants and no vowels so that I could one day end up here and be my best, warmest self. Like that, that's what I needed. That's what generationally what this was all building to. I'm not, I'm not going back. I'm not taking a step back. No, can't do it. Did you, was there anything you wanted to talk about today besides yes. Station Eleven? Uh, hard to imagine anything else worth talking about. Um, we're very excited to get into it. But I kind of, you know, I guess I just was thinking about the box office. And this is spurred on not because I've seen, <laughs> this won't surprise anyone, even in non-pandemic years, any of the major movies, although I'm looking forward to catching up on as many as I can uh, in, the next, in the next week with, <laughs> while wearing as many masks as I can. But I am a fan of the cinema, despite much audio con- evidence to the contrary. And I was kind of struck by the the doom and gloom tone that has dominated some Hollywood reportage in the wake of Steven Spielberg's West Side Story debuting to a very disappointing number at the box office. I think it was under $10 million yeah. for its opening weekend. This is despite The lowest box reviews. office opening ever for a Tony Kushner project, I think. Oh, is that how they're spinning it? I don't know. Just wait till Carolina change in 2026. Um, I, I, you know, the reviews are rapturous. I'm very excited to see it. It looks very beautiful. It looks very moving in a lot of ways. I, I'm certain that I will be moved by it, both as a fan of the musical and also just the way that it's lit. I mean, it just looks really, it looks exciting. I'm really mm-hmm. glad this movie exists. I haven't seen it. So this is not a conversation about its merits on its own. I guess the thing that struck me was, this sort of gnashing of teeth and rending of garments over like, if if even this isn't working anymore at the American box office, what can we do? And this is, you know, the the, the B side to the story is as we are talking, um, this, the new Spider-Man movie, which I am frankly equally as excited to see for very different reasons, is about to Look, open. They're, they're and both New York stories, man. <laughs> That's right. Oh my God. It's kind of amazing pivot by you. Um, is opening to, you know, record box office or even the advanced sales are, are through the roof. I'll put it to you first because I, I sort of have a half-baked take, which, you know, which is typical for me. But I'm wondering, do you have any response to this? Do you, are you A, surprised by the lackluster box office? And B, are you surprised by the fact that the industry analysts are still reacting as if this was Amistad crashing on the rocks of the Oscar season release in 1997. Sure. Uh, well, I so I will respond to your headline with another headline, which was the okay. one of the more interesting conversations I saw this week was, or not even a conversation, but the aggregated sort of press run that Ben Affleck's been on this week, which has been yeah. quite extraordinary on a number of levels. Um, but one of the things that grabbed my eye, and uh, Fantasy actually texted it to me last night that I hadn't seen it, but was essentially Affleck being like, Last Duel will probably be the last movie I put out in theaters. Now, I, that may not count for the mm-hmm. contractual obligations he has to any other DC things or whatever, and he may just be letting it rip on, on a variety of podcasts right now, but he, he wasn't hair on fire. He was like, this is the only thing that me and my coworkers talk about. There, I've made some bad movies. Last Duel is not one of them. It mm-hmm. plays in a theater if you go see it. And I'm just not interested in making IP stuff. And I just don't think that there's going to be any place for those movies anymore. Now, I also don't think 
Ben Affleck is going to uh, be in a, a very small budget indie that mm-hmm. might make a theatrical run before it goes to VOD because I do still think that there's somewhat of a market there for movies like that. But the West Side Story uh, story goes along with the Ben Affleck story hand in hand because I don't know whether or not people are lighting themselves their hair on fire because they're worried about the future of the theatrical experience, which I'm sure they are. You know, like, it's interesting to see one person be incredibly chill about it, like Paul Thomas Anderson. Yes. (laughs) And then one person be like, fuck all American movies are coming to a screeching halt and it's just going to be free guy for the rest of our lives. But I thought that those two things were interlocked. I think that there's something, first of all, like, look, like we're middle-aged and we are still not quite in the West Side Story demo. You know what I mean? Like, it, imagine it, how everybody younger than us feels about being I was going to get to this. This is your yeah. responsibility to go pay respects to the American Musical Theater Project, Steven Spielberg, Tony Kushner, Steven Sondheim. Like, these names are not resonating probably with a lot of younger people and that's okay um i i just think like it's like everything i just did an nba podcast and i was like you can put a caveat in every single thing i talk about because half the teams are going out there with six guys you know what i mean like i yes, just don't okay. know what happens with west so, side story if people feel 100 consumer confidence in going to the movie theater i think that Yes to all of that. And I'm glad you brought in the Affleck piece of it too. I, I think, um, who doesn't love an Affleck piece yeah. in the middle of a conversation? Um, I think maybe the best place to start is by saying the it's unquestionable that the pandemic exacerbated things that were already in motion, right? And and I think that the, the panic, hair on fire tone comes from the fact of a large swath of an industry thinking they were in one part of the their own narrative and finding out they were not. They were at a completely different part closer to the end. But we see this seismic shift happen in, um, well, probably in all industries, but certainly in culture all the time. I was just, you know, trying to go through my year in music and, and post my favorite 50 songs on Spotify. And I realized that for me, this really was the year when the album was no more to me. Mm-hmm. There are two or three full albums that I really loved and treasured all the way through. Um, have you heard that? that Floating Points Pharaoh Sanders record? Holy shit. I mean, I'm not even a free jazz guy. That's incredible. But this was the year when I was like, you know, even if I love, I I could tell you I love an album, but probably at this point, I love eight songs on it and I can listen to those eight songs. And that feels seismic because we grew up thinking the album was the end-all be-all and that was the way to, you know, put your art into the world and for it to be consumed and discussed and et cetera. And you know what? It's not anymore. There's still great records, but it's not anymore. That's kind of, I feel like, where we're at with the theatrical experience. Because first of all, the theatrical experience is not going anywhere. You just might not be going to it in the same way and for the same content. Like, people, and not just people, an entire generation equates seeing Spider-Man, for example, in a with the experience of going to a theater, paying a certain amount of money, getting popcorn, and watching it with everyone, right? Like, there's a reason why that... Avengers Endgame clip of people in the theater reacting to the Thor hammer part or everyone coming back was so, that was the reason why it went so viral. That was what people were chasing. That is the experience. You can't tell me, to your point, that, but but there's so many choices now. And there's so many different ways to understand how you entertain yourself, which (laughs) that sounds a little more uh, uh, blue than I intended it to. But it's just so night and day different from five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. The assumption that an entire that generation of young people and not even young, that young anymore people 
should kowtow at the altar, as you said, of the great American theater songbook. And that the name Spielberg or Sondheim or Kushner should just de facto register to them because they there aren't that many choices of other names to know. That's gone, man. That's gone. Now, does that mean that you shouldn't make West Side Story? First of all, absolutely not. This should be made and celebrated. And one thing that I'm finding interesting is I know there's the ego involved with the theatrical run and the money that can be generated from that. But half the other time on this podcast, Chris, we talk about how spending godly sums of money for projects that are never accounted for, like we literally don't see the ratings or the accounting numbers, makes sense for right. Amazon to be like, here's a half billy for fantasy properties. You know what I mean? And that works for us. Okay, yeah, I bet it does. You certainly have a lot of money and it seems to be making sense for you. I don't see the difference, frankly, in Apple being like, for the people who use our service or for the legacy media we control or protect or want to be invested in, they'll throw $200 million at Spielberg and Kushner and they should. The second piece of that is this absolute orthodoxy of opening weekend. Like it's just, it doesn't make sense to compare In the Heights as opening BO with Spider-Man. It's just not the same experience. But does it mean that In the Heights should never be in a movie theater? No. In fact, if we had a different way of looking at this and it played at like the Alamo draft houses all over the country or matinees for families, or just was available to see like the way you would go to the theater in a more low key way, it would probably do very nicely, even while it was humming along on HBO Max. You know what I mean? It just feels like this weird, like, it's very church-like still. Like, oh no, we must pour everything into this one box and then wring it out like an old sponge for every last dollar. And then we will put it in the other box. And obviously the the windows are changing in terms of like, you know, the great film of 2021 and Kanto coming to Disney, Disney Plus on December 24th. <laughs> Shout out all the filmmakers involved. You know, that wouldn't have been two months in the past. That would have been a year. Yeah. But- I don't know why, I guess this is one of those classic podcast bits where I work myself up into a lather the way many hosts do, just to say like, I don't know why people are confused about something that I wasn't confused about. I don't know ultimately the value of that sentiment, but it, I, I found myself really worked up about it today. Because I think one day you look up and things are massively different. Because one day right. you try to, you decide to do a playlist at the end of the year and there are no albums. You know, like one, one year you do a top 10 movies list and realize you saw seven of them at home. You know, like I yeah. think that both for us as individuals and watching like our habits change and also like on a more pop cultural societal level, looking up and realizing like, for instance, like we're, we're going to be talking about this in the, a show to be named later, uh, a watch pod to be named later. But I was going through the most anticipated shows of 2022. You're seeing a couple of places put up lists like that. Those are the fucking movies now. <laughs> like I yeah. just looked at that list and I was like, not only are you talking about like, multiple Nicole Kidman shows and multi Woody Harrelson shows and a show about the Watergate and a show about this. And like all of these shows that I'm not saying each one of them started out as a feature and was expanded to meet this limited series or, or uh, possible extended, you know, multi-season series order. But look at the, when we, when we do our lists on Monday with our, the best of the year, several of those could have been features, you know, like a lot of the stuff that's being talked like, the content or the storytelling that's happening in a Yellow Jackets or Station Eleven or a what have you, just as easily could have been put into a, a feature film. And so I think that what we're realizing and what Ben Affleck is realizing and maybe what Steven Spielberg, it probably won't bother Steven Spielberg because he's going to be able to make his last five or 10 movies and put them out into theaters just the same way Paul Thomas Anderson will or whoever yeah. else. But I just think that aside from a very, very, very select few filmmakers who have taught 
their audience about the sort of proper way to view their movies. And I don't even know if Spielberg has done that in the last 10 years, really. Right. This is just going to be like, there. there's going to be TV and blockbusters. Also, not to get super old, old head about it, but like, from what I, I was about to say, remember, we are not this old. But the knock on television when it became, you know, affordable enough to be in everyone's homes uh, half a century, more than half a century ago, quite a bit more, 75 years ago, um, was that, oh, this is going to ruin movies because why would anyone go pay for something if they can get it home for free? Well, the answer is because it's different. It's different content. Yeah. The movies for 60 of those next 75 years consistently delivered things that you could not get at home. Um, I feel like th- this is just where we are now and and it's just collapsing further. Like you you could you could you could look at it from the point of view as oh what happened to the adult film or like the middle budget, you know, movie that was about about the Michael you know, Clayton's. Yeah. The Michael Clayton's or even going back further like The Big Chill or all the movies like that. Well, it's like well they actually did go to TV. Like we have this is a golden age of character driven story like this is just in a, with emotional storytelling like we have that right. on television and tv is thriving because of it we're about to talk about a brilliant example of it and the movies so far like we're still delivering like a dune i i watched dune on a tv but that was a movie and i wish that i could see it I, maybe i'll see the sequel in a the theater you know what i mean like that's still on that level i don't know it it, it I think maybe, also maybe there's the, just like a lot of anxiety right now man i was like you know i'm going to i'm going, to I'm going east friday and there, yeah. you know, it's it's like the numbers are bad, and you're just seeing talk. I mean, talk about a bunch of restaurants closing for the next couple of weeks out of an abundance of caution. It's like, you know, it feels like one step forward, two steps back. And I think the things that go first are the not luxury exercises, but the things that are optional. You know, you totally. You know, it's like you got to take your kid to school. You got to get to the supermarket. You got to do this. You got to do that. Once you get to the things you don't have to do, but want to do, like go to the movies or go to a basketball game or go to a restaurant and you start getting confronted with yeah. a more like a higher risk profile. It's just like, is if West Side Story is out in 45 days or whatever, like, I don't know, I could wait, you know, or, it, it, or, or now personally, like my risk profile is at, at a point now where I'm like, I'm going to go see that movie in the theater soon. I'll, I'll go see Spider-Man. Like, I, I think I'm okay but geez, like I, I don't blame anybody for not. No, I, I'm glad you. I'm glad you ended up on that point because I think one of the reasons why I'm exercised about it is anxiety. I mean, I think we're all yeah. feeling it an enormous amount um, at this moment, and you know, I, I I get it. I get why people would be like, the sky is falling because the box office doesn't make sense. We can't make these movies because it's the same feeling of anxiety and uncertainty and the you know just trying to latch on to something. We also that live used in Los Angeles. Sense. There might be plenty of parts of the country where people are like, well, I would go see West Side Story. I just don't want to. <laughs> I think that is a million percent the case. Um, I'm glad it exists. And that's the other piece of it. The immediacy of the news that's causing our anxiety and the immediacy of our expectations for the value of something in terms of how it, you know, the kind of financial returns it brings, that's not really working for me right now. The bigger point is they made what is apparently a beautiful version of West Side Story. We're going to see it. Sorry, podcast listeners, that day is not today. (laughs) But I'm glad, in a weird way, I'm glad we ended up back to a place that feels very comfortable to me and and my people going all the way back to (laughs) Eastern Europe, just as sort of a deep-seated, just sort of skin-itching anxiety. I'm very comfortable there. And uh, it's time to pivot to something that I truly didn't, I mean, we saw the show coming, but I did not expect 
to be this uh, rapturous, this moved, this excited to talk about a pandemic show during a never-ending pandemic. Yeah. So I guess I would say that I haven't felt this way. I've loved many shows over the last few years. Obviously, we talk about television all the time. There are shows that do different things for you. Um, It's hard for me to remember the last time I felt as emotionally present with a show Mm -hmm. than I have with Station Eleven. So just a little bit of background. And Andy, please sub in and, and help me out with some of the the spaces between my thoughts here, but Station Eleven is based on a a, a very popular novel by Emily St. John Mandel, which was, and it's about a pandemic that hits society. And it essentially, I have not read the novel, Andy. I don't think you have read the novel. Um, it's no. got it's it's my my wife loves it. Like it has like a tons of fans. I'm gonna wait until I'm done with the series to watch it to to read it. Um, I I kind of just got swept away with the the story that I was seeing on screen and didn't necessarily want to get into a book versus adaptation conversation yet. It's been adapted by Patrick Somerville, who people may have heard on this podcast before. He came on when his show Maniac was on Netflix. He worked in the writer's room for Leftovers. He is a novelist and uh, did a little bit of work on Made for Love, which was on HBO Max, I believe, last year or two years ago. It may have been this year, as far as I know. It was pandemic era. Also, how dare you, uh, this... FX is the bridge erasure will not stand. That was Patrick's first job in TV. That's why I counted you for, for bridge erasure. Uh, Okay, so, and Patrick um, made this show with, uh, among other people, Hiro Mirai, who people are obviously familiar with, with his work with Donald Glover, both in music videos and his his directing of uh, Atlanta. He's probably one of the two or three best directors working in TV right now. Uh, and he directed at least three of the episodes. I'm not sure. I can't remember if he directed any more than that. But this show was, uh, the first episode was shot before the pandemic. I believe it was shot in January of 2020. So December 19 into January of 20 in Chicago. Right. And then there was uh, a shutdown. It came back. It shot through, you know, uh, a pandemic. It looks like the pandemic that first summer, I would imagine. And into... uh, this relocated release. to Canada, uh, but they did get back together and, and shoot it um, they, almost a year later. They did. So, yeah, that's what it is. And it's on, it's on Max now, the first three episodes. Andy, let's just talk about it a little bit generally. Do you want to go first or should I like just kind of trying to sort through some of well, our feelings about this thing? I, I think, I think we'll, I'll, I'll start just by saying there might be two barriers to entry to the show. One. I very much connect with one I think is less important um, and we can table that, but I do, I did want to talk to you about the problem this show clearly created for um, Paramount studio and HBO max, the networks uh, marketing departments, because I don't think they know how to market it. And I don't blame them. I think everyone works very hard at their jobs and does their best. And this show almost confounds easy one sheet marketing, whatever you have seen, whether it was a trailer, which was lovely, or it's the one sheet which features Mackenzie Davis, who herself is lovely, but I think the sheet itself is kind of confusing. It's not the show you may think it is. So don't go off of that. The second point, though, is what we've sort of been dancing around, which is, this is, I mean, it's uncanny. It's ironic. It's just, I can't imagine the headspace that Patrick and Hero and all of the collaborators collaborators found themselves in. They were making a show about a deadly viral pandemic when a deadly viral pandemic broke out. Mm-hmm. And then they saw it through, and I'm so glad they did. But you have heard me say this. You've heard Chris say this. We're n- we don't know if we're ready for pandemic content. 
We don't, we certainly didn't want TV shows about masks and Zooms or anything like that. This has bled into a larger conversation or larger point or even a larger drum that I've been beating for a long time, which is I have dystopia fatigue. I am so, so tired for emotional reasons and storytelling reasons in seeing the world end. Mm -hmm. And I probably spent too much of my time talking about uh, why The Last Man, the recently canceled FX show, harping on that fact. I think that the people who made that show did so with good intentions and in good faith. I think there were a lot of things to recommend that show. Um, it is should not be the poster child that I'm about to make it. But there was an element of that pilot that really troubled me, which was the almost paint by numbers. We got to end this world before we get to the story we're interested in. And so we have the shots of actors who are maybe Canada famous, but not famous enough to be in more than one episode of a show starting to cough worry in a worrying way. And you know, they're not going to make it and there's bloodshed and horror, et cetera, et cetera. So I was really nervous, frankly, Patrick, Patrick is a friend. I'll say that at the top. And I was still nervous about checking out the show because I just didn't know if I was ready to, to engage. And the first episode is really the only one. There are things that are going to haunt you and fuck you up throughout. But the first episode is the one that people with particular uh, pandemic trauma might struggle with or might be nervous about. And I will tell you that it totally fucked me up in the next more spoilery part of our conversation. We can get into the specifics of why and yeah. how and the certain scenes. Um but I have to tell everyone that this was my, I don't remember another experience uh, of getting on a tour bus through an apocalypse where I had the sensation that the driver of the tour bus was a kind person. And I'm not saying that because I know Patrick, I'm just talking about the artistic sensibilities and point of view of the show are respectful, gentle, humanist, and it tells an agonizing story in its first hour in a way that is totally compelling and deeply haunting and powerfully human. And I'm so happy that they made it that way. And I was so happy that I watched it. And it's only the first part. The show yeah. gets better. Yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't think I have the aversion to dystopia stuff that you do. What did you say um, at dinner the other day? You were like, you were like, you, 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 you want extremity in your entertainment? <laughs> yeah. It was, it was real. It was real rich guy in Squid Game talk coming from CR. <laughs> I just, I, I, I like to be dominated by what I'm watching. That's what yeah. you said. Yes, and that's why I like horror movies, and that's why I think I like extremity, no matter what it is, whether it's emotional extremity, whether it's dialogue that's like torqued up all the way so that it's either fast or it's jargon filled or whatever. Um. I almost feel like so, my my like concern going into this show or my like nervousness was more like it was going to turn into those early pandemic memes where it was like dolphins has have returned to the Venice yes. canals. Yes, yes. You know, nature like, is healing. Yeah, I I didn't think it was going to be nature is healing. I I I guess like this show has forced me to kind of just become a little bit more at peace with the idea that life has changed and that the world has changed and that my life will not be the same life that I thought it was going to be in January of 2020. You know, like it's, it's not going in the same direction. It was a hundred thousand different things could have happened. Had there never been a pandemic that would have changed that. But I think that a lot of what has kept me sane over the last two years, and I would imagine the same thing goes for our listeners is the thought that it will go back to normal. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I'm like 
it, it hasn't. I, this show hasn't changed my thinking about it. But watching characters in Station Eleven, honestly, sort of deal with competing philosophies about like before and after, you know, and whether or not the past is your present and is your future or not has been pretty liberating and pretty emotional. But if I'm searching for words, it's because I feel like when I watch this show, it really stokes my imagination, but it's hard to to articulate what it is that it's doing. We can get into the mechanical things that Patrick and his team do in the actual episode breakdowns, but I, I wanted to kind of try and throw it to you this way, if I could. Yeah. So much TV that we watch. I'm always aware of this is going somewhere mm-hmm. or this is delaying the act of going somewhere, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm, so I'm, it, it's no fault of any TV shows, but I think it's because we're very hyper aware of like the tropes or production, you know, kind of mechanisms that work on television. And we obviously like, it's a limited series or it's an anthology series, or I don't think Jason Bateman's going to keep doing this for that much longer or whatever it is. And you're, mm-hmm. you're kind of thinking all the time about the, um, this finite experience you're going to have, which is interesting because we grew up with TV. It was just like these fucking shows are just on forever. But now I think I'm always thinking like, huh, where is this going? Where is this going? And then I'm very aware. I think we, we, we talked a lot in succession about like, why are they delaying where they're going? Why does this feel like stalling or killer? This was a filler episode or whatever. And I, I just like, I think I mentioned earlier in this conversation, I, I have not felt this present with a show. And this completely disinterested in either of those two questions with the show, despite the fact that there's so much, so much of the show is a, a quest. Like it's essentially people moving a lot, you know, through this, this world. So I think I, I love that framing. I think it's worth saying again, before we get into that, we're not still not spoiling, but I do think if we're convincing people and I hope we are, uh, I wish we had a little meter on this, on our screens to see how many people have, are agreeing to start this journey. Broad strokes the series after the pandemic hits and it is thankfully much worse than the experience we experience we've gone through um it is a a flu virus that has a uh a very very high mortality rate like in the 90 percent like humanity civilization as we know it is essentially ended um the first episode is about day one in a very profound and intense way the series over the next 10 episodes jumps around from day from day one to year 20 quite freely um with some characters that overlap and intersect in surprising ways, it is as much about people living post pans as they call themselves in year 20 focused on Mackenzie Davis's the adult version of a character played by Mackenzie Davis in a traveling Shakespeare troupe as they follow what they call the wheel around like Chicago and great lakes area, performing Shakespeare to the civilization that is still there. Uh, The title station 11 comes from a comic book that a character named Miranda played by the brilliant Danielle uh, Deadweiler plays that uh, she is the she's she's written and drawn and it's about a lonely astronaut looking down on earth from a basically disconnected or dying space station it's about acting and life and airports I mean it's about everything and nothing and all at once all over across many times and it's the storytelling is so surprising and so vital because of the way it finds absolutely worthwhile life or death stakes in what could be in lesser hands, almost throwaway moments in day 30 or year nine or whatever. Like it, you don't quite know where you're going, but you know that the, the, the eye with which it's going to take everything in is going to be the same wry, lively, interested, 
empathetic mm-hmm. gaze that has given us so much story like already through the first three episodes. Um, okay, to your point again, before we get into the, the super granular specifics, I marvel at the show because it is succeeding on a godlike level on on the two sides of the ball, if you will. Mm-hmm. What I just sort of, all the adjectives I just used to describe the the vibe, basically, the 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 perspective, the tone, um, those are in such short supply, you know. And in that tone, you can see in the most wonderful way um, the connective genetic tissue from uh, the previous show that Patrick worked on with Damon Lindelof, The Leftovers. And sorry, Damon, you know I'm going to say it, particularly the tone that the show adopted in <laughs> seasons two and three. Sorry to beat that <laughs> hobby horse. But I think even he admits it to a degree where, you know, the essential thing to me as a viewer was the show remembered that oftentimes people laugh at funerals. They don't just cry. That gentle sardonic, cynical, people don't always say the right thing. They're not always, it, things are, people are messy and that's what makes them care, worth caring about. And that's what makes them worth fighting for and loving and, you know, and just, and just looking at, regarding. That is shot through everything in the show and, and that is priceless and that's what I respond to. I think it's what you respond to always in art and it's wonderful. To have that married to such absolutely exquisite technical proficiency, I mean, it's not just Hero's direction, right? I mean, the the other directors who worked on the show, from um, Lucy Cherniak to Helen Shaver, uh, yeah, Helen Shaver, um, Jeremy Podeswa, who had worked on Game of Thrones, the production design to the performances from not just Mackenzie Davis and Danielle Deadweiler, but um, Gael Garcia Bernal and um, Caitlin Fitzgerald, uh, to on a just a a almost scientific writer's room level of here's how much we're going to give of each story and it's all going to be interconnected, but you're never going to feel cheated. You're going to understand where you are in the timeline and it's going to feel natural. And when revelations come, they won't feel uh, shocking, but they will feel surprising. And even if they're not surprising, they will feel earned. It's really wild. I mean, just a production on this size and scale, multiple timelines, multiple locations, characters playing the same Actors playing the same characters uh, at different points in their lives or points in their, you know, in their in their nightmare journey. The, the show goes from uh, Chicago to Singapore to maybe even to outer space. Um, and to have it feel measured and calm, like, you know, when you, when you watch athletes and they play, they play with control. Like, it's not just like uh, barreling towards the basket. Mm-hmm. You know, they, 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 they feel like it's almost like slow motion for them. That's what watching the show feels like. And look, Patrick's going to come on and talk to us and he will tell us that's total bullshit. This was absolute, the hardest thing he's ever done and too many moving pieces and it was mania and it's all an illusion that it looks put together. But that's what all TV is. And it it just resonates. I mean, you, I think you and I both felt it like you turn it on and you're like, okay, yep. Yeah. This is working. It's, yeah. it's executing that most difficult thing. The artistic intention is being communicated through the technical abilities of those working on it. And that is, that's, that's the symphony of when TV is working, when um, it works best. There's a, a bit, you know, more that we can say generally speaking, but th- I guess we can maybe transition into the episodes after this. I was just going to say that um, 
a lot of the stuff that we respond to is mm-hmm. whether it's TV or movies or whatever is something that it's, it's art that doesn't insult your intelligence. And I think sometimes that's a shorthand way of saying like, I like Tony Gilroy scripts, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like I really liked, I, I really like it when people use a lot of jargon. Yeah. I also think that it's to some extent not being afraid to drop somebody in a world and thinking and, and, and trusting them to get their own bearings and for you not to always have to sort of point out which way is up for them. This show does that. I mean, like certainly drops you in multiple timelines and asks you to kind of understand the nature of who this person is, what their relationship is to the other people in the room with them or on the other end of the phone with them, who this character who may be an actor that you recognize who walks in off screen but is not you know, isn't necessarily like going to spend a lot of time on the show. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I can't think of a show where I watch it and I understand I, the inner life of the characters that I'm watching without actually having mm-hmm. that spelled out for me, you know, and mm-hmm. there's moments in these first three episodes with characters that you maybe haven't met before and might not meet again after. And you're like, I know exactly who this person is. Something about the casting, something about the way uh, in which these people are allowed yeah. to look, you know, like th- there is like a, a lack of artifice, but not an overwrought kind of verite-ness of it. Like they, they are just real people and the way they communicate not only narrative, but just like emotional life without actually ever saying it. Or when they are saying it, they're talking about something specific between them and the other character. This is the shared history that you and I have. I'm not going to go into my... There's not going to be a situation where somebody is like, I know you, you know, Wanda yeah. Maximoff. Like, here's here's your resume. You know, it's, it's like these are people who happen to meet in the most extreme of circumstances. Well, but yeah, go is, ahead. No, I, I, I love that. And I think you're saying like, we know them. But because we know we know what we know about them isn't just some facts or the the way they present themselves, we know that they are fully realized human beings, even if it's fiction. And so when they behave in certain ways or they they can surprise us with their behavior, but we stay rooted and grounded in them. And I do think it's it's worth mentioning that a a lot of the credit for that, I think, does go to the casting Mm -hmm. before we even talk about the performances. There is a tendency, especially now as TV has become more and more like blockbuster movies that you need names, right? You need names to fill out every, every the every, all the major players on the call sheet um, just to get it greenlit or to get it made. And if you're browsing, you know, Station Eleven or you're going to Wikipedia, there are people whose names you might know if you watch television or see movies. I mean, I mentioned Gael Garcia Bernal, Mackenzie Davis, people know from Halt and Catch Fire, or maybe they like the um, Terminator movie she was in. There's no, there's, but these, these are not household names. The major, major lifting is done by um, a young actor named Matilda Lawler, who plays the young version of Mackenzie Davis's Kirsten. Like, unfucking believable performance. Un- unreal kid performance, or just performance. Yeah. Um, Himesh Patel, who I think was in that, he was in that, the, the Danny Boyle Beatles yeah. movie, right? And he's in Tenet. Yeah. Yeah. He was in Tenet. Incredible performance. From the second you see him, you are with him in a very crucial scene. Lori Petty, who, you know, we certainly will always love from the movie performances from years ago, still bringing it. And then just up and down the call sheet. I mentioned Danielle Deadweiler as Miranda. When we get into the episode talk, we'll rave about her more. When you get into the series and you get through episode three, you will never forget her name again. Yeah. And did she look kind of familiar? 
Yes. Uh, was I all in on her from the minute we saw her? Yes. Did I realize in the moment that she was one of the stars of the Emmy award-winning episode of Watchmen that talked about Hooded Justice's backstory? She played the character's wife. Um, she was brought to Patrick's attention partially by Court Jefferson, the writer who worked on both shows, who worked with uh, and, who's, and won the Emmy for that episode. This is smart team building, you know, and I think Patrick credits Hero a lot with this too. Mackenzie Davis and Caitlin Fitzgerald, people might not know the name Caitlin Fitzgerald, but you know her from mm-hmm. being excellent in Masters of Sex or being excellent on Succession when she was on it uh, as, as Tabitha, which is Roman's sometimes paramour. Right. Um, the, these are the people <laughs> when who When he's not deliver. trying to fuck Jared Minkin, yeah. Right. Or his, yeah. or, or his parents, I guess. Yeah. Um, these are the people who deliver. You know what I mean? They may not deliver audiences by putting their name on the poster, but that doesn't really matter, honestly, and never has. Like the old adage still is true to me, which is um, TV stars don't make TV, TV makes stars. Yeah, I and, like watching Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson as much as the next guy, but it's pretty amazing when you just see a generation or at least a cohort of yeah. people get minted in a show like this. I, I think, and we didn't even mention uh, David Wilmot, who's a great Irish actor who just owns the screen as Clark when he's there. And and one of the beauties of the show, the way it ebbs and flows, pushes and pulls, waxes and wanes, is like, you might think someone was in the show just for a minute. And then four episodes later, there's an episode about that character. And not only do you see why the actor was so excited, you realize what they were capable of. Yeah. So why don't we do this? We can take, Kaya, we can take a quick like stab of music here or a quick break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about the first three episodes. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube. Car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Andy, so let's do the first three episodes, which all went up on HBO Max. If you have not watched these episodes, please stop listening. I would just come back after you watch episode three. 
it's a nice little if 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 it matters. Episode three is one of the best episodes of TV I've ever seen. So you have that waiting for you. So please come back after you see episode three. All right. So here we go. Spoilers. The thing is, is that they're not that many. I mean, like, yeah, stuff happens, but yeah. it's not like who is taking over Waystar Royco as much as how are these people going to get through their lives and what constitutes a life? So one of the sort of repeated mantras of the show is survival is insufficient. It's this idea of like, Mm -hmm. what do you basically do to make your life worth living? And no matter what the circumstances are. And in this case, you know, we see in the first episode called uh, wheel of fire, we see a brief glimpse of Chicago basically before and as they are finding out about the emergence of this pandemic. Uh, most of the action takes place around and after the a performance of King Lear that is starring this uh, movie star in the show named Arthur Leander, but it's played by Gael Garcia Bernal. And it follows his death, essentially, in this performance. He dies on stage, and he is attended to by a guy named Jeevan, who's in the audience with his girlfriend, and sees that Leander is going in, is in distress and goes up on stage to try and help him, but can't save his life. Jeevan then is just hanging around backstage and winds up kind of connecting with this young woman named Kirsten. Play the only the only one who who notices her basically yeah, that basically. she might not know who is responsible for this person, this child. Right, and she's she's in the play, and he kind of just is like, "Do you need help? Like, do you know where your parents are?" And there's this whole thing where essentially they go on an odyssey across Chicago trying to get Kirsten home as news is coming in about the pandemic as mm-hmm. Jeevan's. Uh, doctor sister is reporting from a hospital about the increased uh, state of emergency that they're in. And uh, yeah, so this is the tough episode to get through. Let me start with uh, two things. One, I really loved your point um, about, uh, you know, wh- whether we're watching characters change or we're watching a world change. I mean, most shows, whether they are 30 minute comedies or not, are essentially situational. They're not all situational comedies, but they're situational programs, meaning uh, Seattle Grace doesn't change. Certainly, although the body count there is pretty intense, the characters change over multiple, multiple years. But even a show uh, like Atlanta, where the literal place that they are changes, the world itself is a fixed place that Earn and, and Paperboy or Alfred, like they can navigate the world, right? Mm-hmm. It's still the world. They know where to go get a bottle of water or whatever they're interested in getting. Station Eleven. I mean, you understand why Patrick and I'm sure other writers were eager to get their hands on it as an adaptation because it's it's such a unique thing. The characters are changing in response to the world that is changing in response to the characters that are changing, and you can do the storytelling on both sides of the ball. That said, it does begin with like a like a sliding door splinter off of our world, and the first thing you hear in a crowded, unmasked theater is a cough. And it shook me to my fucking core. <laughs> there is a feeling as you watch this episode that, look, we haven't, we haven't processed this, guys. You know, like, I'm saying this to you as someone who is extraordinarily fortunate in all aspects of life. And when I say the pandemic has barely touched me, it's like I I, I have remained, knock on wood, healthy. My Friends and family have remained healthy. I have remained employed, et cetera, et cetera. But as you were saying, Chris, like, it's been awful. Mm-hmm. It's been absolutely taxing and horrifying and, and traumatic in ways that, you know, that I'm not in touch with. 
And I know that I'm not in touch with them because look how upset I was about West Side Story box office reactions when really what I'm upset about is the New York Times today. Right. You know, so to engage with this episode really touches something deeply. So as Jeevan and Kirsten go through the snowy city and every stop along their journey, you begin to see the cracks. It's like right. stepping out onto a frozen lake, like which people in Chicago should know very well. Um, you, you hear it crack, you see it crack, and and it's not going well. So they're on the subway. He gets a call from his sister, who's who's an emergency room doctor. He goes to see his brother. Um, well, you go shopping first and spends thousands of dollars on groceries and tells the guy to go home. I mean, it 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 really upset me to watch it in a very very intense way. But like I said at the beginning, it, it wasn't unkind. It, it did feel, you know, we're being grandiose because we're moved by the show and we're excited about the show. But it was weirdly therapeutic, which I think is going to be a theme in how we talk about the series, in that we were, even I, from my totally comfortable seat on a couch, was dredging up very, very painful and uncomfortable things, but I felt safe doing I think it. there's also a subliminal classic classicism to the, to the story. I mean, Jeevan is a knight. Yeah, you know, Kirsten right. is this princess. She's still dressed in her King Lear costume, mm-hmm. and he is guiding her across this land to get to this tower where Jeevan's brother Frank lives. But it's this beautiful condo in the in a in a skyscraper in Chicago off the lake, and they are trying to get to safety. They are trying to get to cat to the castle. Essentially, I mean, this is this is about as basic as Western storytelling can get. I love that point. And I, I think also there's something that I was thinking about in watching the pilot. I mean, it, in as much as it's about anything else, the show is about system collapse and about, um, you know, our confidence in systems and our very, I think, healthy denial about the fragility, relative fragility of anything. And so watching the show had the pandemic not happened, I still think people would have been very compelled and probably why the the show was the book was compelling in addition to it being well written or whatever um you know i think a lot of the last few years for a lot of us has been about living our daily life realizing that a sense that has girded some of us comfortable members of society privileged members of society and being like well the grown-ups are in charge or there's a there's a there's something there's a backstop for that you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like that won't really happen uh certainly that's the way we've you know we've all felt politically and and now in terms of just what we're able to withstand collectively or what systems there are in place to protect us or their loved ones or just the way of life that we know. And and so that feeling that's shot through, especially the first three episodes, and, and we can talk about our buddy Tim Simon's performance in episode three and kind of the energy that he brings to it. It was a very familiar one, which is, well, I, I don't want to panic. I know I shouldn't panic, but also I don't want to panic because there that way lies madness so Mm -hmm. maybe i'll go golfing or maybe i'll just continue on my way or i'll get in the car or all these things that end catastrophically for people it's really it's weird to be raving about something and then also want to use the word triggering but it's again it's in a respectful and i think ultimately healthy way well and i think that the the show has built in release valves so the second episode which we can get into goes to year 20 we get out of the fall Wait, before you go to year 20, I'm sorry, Chris. I just got to say, the fucking plane crash. Yeah, right. So let's do that. So let's talk about fucking, that. Fucking just mic drop of we're telling you a show. We're telling you an apocalypse in miniature. Brilliant decision. 
brilliant decision. It's only we don't, it's only their perspective. We're not we're not doing yeah. It's why the Ultron movie worked, you know, because we met two Sokovians. <laughs> two just humble run-of-the-mill Sokovians. And then yeah. when the whole fucking country gets lifted up like a like a um, you know, one of those trays on top chef to reveal yeah. the quick fire ingredient. I wasn't like, oh, random CGI extras. I no, was you're like, like, that's that's the, Dave, the, my favorite. The Maximoffs. Sokovians. Yeah. <laughs> They're there. Uh, but I, I joke, but also I don't joke because it's 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 a model of restraint, but also of smart storytelling that we are going to experience this the way, frankly, we might in a similar hope to God it doesn't happen way, which is just kind of with bewildered confusion and humans' ability to somehow kind of be optimistic just to put one foot in front of the other. So these two people walk through a world that's just the world they know, and it's annoying in the subway, and we can't get cell phone service. But that guy in the car is dying? Yeah. What? And for it to then end with a giant blockbuster movie type catastrophe or catastrophic moment and have it be done just out of frame. We understand it through the eyes of these characters that we've come to know and love. And it's, it's deeply upsetting. And that one image is more upsetting, you know, than, than, you know, I don't, I don't need to throw other people under the bus to be happily on this bus. But I do think about like the way Zack Snyder ends his like superhero movies with like, and now Metropolis was yeah. fucking leveled, bro. What if these like, two gods fucked a city? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. What if one plane fell yeah. from the sky at the end of an awful, mystifying night? I'm glad you stopped me from moving too quickly into two because I did want to mention that there's a moment in one that I love a lot where they're at the uh, parking lot for this supermarket, this sort of yeah. empty supermarket. And Jeevan's just bought like thousands of dollars worth of food and supplies. And Kirsten is kind of like, I gotta, I gotta try and find my parents you know like because they've gone to her house once oh, yeah. and nobody's home so then he's like well you can come with me to the supermarket and then i think the idea is basically she's going to jump in like an uber you know yes um and go home and he's watching her traipse across this snowy parking lot as she's trying to find her way home and he goes you know what your parents texted my brother and it's all cool like you should just come with me which you know is I think is obviously something he's making up on the fly. He probably knows deep down at that point that Kirsten's parents are dead. Kirsten might know too. But yes. the the thing that's beautiful about it is that Jeevan tells her a story and they agree to sort of believe this story because it's the only way forward, you know? I, and I, that winds up becoming basically the theme of the show. <laughs> that's beautifully noted and explained because that is, that's where we go from here. Yeah. Where... Why, why do we keep Shakespeare alive? Why are we performing it? I mean, plays and that moment in the supermarket are good lies we agree to tell each other and we agree to believe so we can keep going. That's yeah. what it all is. And that's what, you know, there's a lot of, that's what a lot of like the micro and macro transactions of human existence amount to. And, you know, with willing participants on both sides of the ledger, I think that's key to what you said. I mean, it, he's lying. And on some level, she probably knows that but they both need it and they both need to have that shared moment of, of, uh, of coming together over that shared moment. It's, it's, it's very powerful. I, I wondered on a lighter note um, when you were talking about the different versions of you that may have thrived in a non pandemic oh, yeah. earth, do you think you would have gone through with your desire to adopt a, a teenage ward? <laughs> and do you think that Jeevan's method of acquiring one? Well, unorthodox uh, did that, did that, 
I mean, did your heart, did your heart hear that, an echo in that it moment? It helps that he has adopted like an angel sent to earth rather than <laughs> some like 13 year old boy who's like in heat and wants to play like first person shooters. <laughs> Right. I think I think there's like a there's like a certain quality of Kirsten. So we then go to the second episode where we, we meet Kirsten 20 years later. She is part of a traveling theater troupe, as Andy said, uh, called the Traveling Symphony. They do Shakespeare all around uh, one of the Great Lakes. Uh, they basically go in a giant circle seasonally right. around this lake, and they never get off this wheel. They call it. It's the wheel of, of this traveling. So there's a little bit of dead, you know, following the dead vibes to this this whole band of outsiders. Everybody's letting their free flag fly, but it never feels ostentatiously weird or anything other than what it is, which is just like, you know, I don't think necessarily theater kids are going to save humanity, but I can also think of a lot worse things to do with myself if there was an apocalypse than to be like, let's put on Hamlet. And they basically arrive in a town where they're going to put on Hamlet. And when they get there, they quickly meet two strangers that obviously were given when I was talking about how you don't need it spelled out mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. You just understand that strangers are not always welcome. You know, that, mm-hmm. that the way that these people have survived over the years is to be very defensive, to be on their, uh, on uh, very aware of their surroundings. And these two guys show up one played by this actor named Daniel Zavato, who you were talking about Daniel Deadweiler. And we'll get to her in a second. Mm-hmm. This kid is like, yo, yeah. Like he has got presence and he shows up and he is the mysterious stranger who kind of sets into motion the, the action of the year 20 of this show, but also will wind up obviously having, you know, his own past. I thought that this was a great episode about why art matters. If that, <laughs> I don't know if that's too big of a statement, no. but watching Mackenzie Davis do the speech from Hamlet about losing her dad while also watching Kirsten realize that her parents are dead. In the past, her memory of yeah, this moment. Her memory, that, that is yeah. informing her performance, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I, I this is going to sound pretentious, but, like, this show made me revisit Hamlet, and I was, re-wa- I was watching an illegal stream of uh, the Andrew Scott Hamlet that came out a few years ago. The, the, hot, Robert, the hot Priest. Yeah, Hot Priest Hamlet, and Hamlet's pretty good, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it, as it turns out... <laughs> That guy knew some stuff, (laughs) Shakespeare, about the human condition. It is still super relevant and deeply moving. And like that's another area to just highlight here, which is it's really important, especially as everything just gets like corporatized and IP and uh, the streaming wars and all the stuff we talk about. The people who are lucky enough to make things still go fucking big. Keep dreaming big. Like, to look at this and, you know, we were almost, I'm glad we're not dancing around the fact that this show is about the purpose of art. I mean, you could roll your eyes or change the channel, but they took a swing mm-hmm. and they connected, you know, because again, because of all the things I was saying before about the lessons that, that Patrick and his collaborators know about, about uh, where to set your story, what level entry points, um, technical stuff uh, in terms of how to just, you know, make decay look actually like rebirth or something beautiful the, the way the hero shoots things and just the, the first moments of the pilot um but yeah but it makes you revisit hamlet like that's cool <laughs> it's not corny i yeah. think it's great and i think there's a wide-eyed optimism to just saying that that feels good it feels freeing it feels nice at this moment and i love that the show doesn't shy away from it and again you get into the casting um 
people who love Halt and Catch Fire, and I really, really, I, I don't think I'm, I think I've been kicked off of the pedestal of loving it because compared to the way people love it now, po- post its Netflix rediscovery and rebirth, I think I've been downgraded to I really, really like it because sure. I think people definitely love it more than I do, not because I don't love it, but because it's incredible, the fandom that it's attracted and it's deserved. All that is to say, they know what Mackenzie Davis is capable of. She's an interesting actor. You know, she's not the person you cast in just any part that on paper seems like something that a woman age 30 to 40 could play. Mm-hmm. She's very physical, you know, and kind of, she has this like rangy physicality. And in episode two, she's diving off of docks and swimming and she's carrying knives and all of that works for this world that she's in. But she also has something almost feral, you know, not just like in the sense of I have knives and the apocalypse happened, but it was, it was there in Cameron and Holden Catch Fire too, where it's just like, she is plugged in to the third rail of something. And if you touch her, you might get electrocuted sure. or if you get too close. But you also kind of want to be near that power source. And and to connect with a character that could be, you know, I don't know what it's like on the page. I'm sure it's beautifully written with it because it's a book and you can use adjectives and sentences to get into people's heads. But in lesser hands, again, the character could be written in a way that would be confusing. Like, well, she had a, she's a traumatized child who's always loved theater. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, that can go in a lot of directions. And it's right. not necessarily that dire- that direction isn't always a uh, compelling television lead or number one in a call sheet. And it's just it's just gangbusters here because then also while she and Daniel Zavato are like eye-fucking each other with, with either malice or something, it's funny around the edges and messy and people are excited to see a show and have cast parties and Laurie Petty's writing symphonies in the background. Um and, and Philippine Velge, who's a young English actress that I'd never encountered, is playing, um, I don't know if she's her ward or best friend. Alex, but basically, I think she's just like her best friend, but also she's got a lot of maternal kind of instincts for her, yeah. Because she, and again, in the language of the show, even though Kirsten was a child when everything went down, she is pre-pan, but uh, Alex was born post-pan. Yeah. And so she has, you know, that that begins to signify and so the, the, the Daniel Zav- Zavato character and he shows up looking like he just walked off the set of everybody wants some but he's like basically starts to introduce this idea of you know day one pain he says that you have a lot of day one pain to Kirsten mm-hmm. and that there is like this great cleansing that happened uh that we shouldn't go back to that that there is like a memory a collective memory that we should just abandon and that there is no before and then a lot of the language or a lot of the lines of dialogue that Kirsten and uh, and this guy share seem to be coming from this comic book that Miranda will find that Miranda Carroll wrote called A Station Eleven, which it, you know it is is basically like a a secret language throughout the show and yeah. serves as. I think it's cool because I think. I, I'm not. I'll find out when I read the book, and I'll find out when I look into more of like whether or not like you can ever actually read Station Eleven as the the comic book. I'm not sure, but it kind of doesn't matter. It's kind of what whatever's in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. What matters is that it's got it. People are obsessed with it. The people it, within the character characters within the show who become obsessed mm-hmm. with Station Eleven and have read it so many times that they can divine meaning out of seemingly thrown away lines of dialogue. And then in the third episode, we go on to see who wrote Station Eleven. And I think at this point, I want to make this other observation that I've had while watching the series. It, it's been since Lost, I think, that there's that I've encountered. A sh- it hasn't been since Lost. I've encountered a show where I would fire up 
the next episode, or in the case of Lost, sit down to watch it at its normally appointed time on the ABC television network. And I would have no idea what I was about to see, who it was going to be about, where it was going to go. Uh, and I would that wouldn't dim my excitement one bit. No. That, yeah. is a, that, is a, that is a rare thing. And while Patrick didn't work on Lost, we mentioned before he did work with Damon, who co-created Lost and, and, and ran it. And one of the things that is also really exciting to me about this show is, is um, it's really one of, if not the best examples of uh, like a coaching tree or mm-hmm. a family tree in, in, in television right now. Um, for people who don't know, like for this is goes to the sports half of the ringer sports and pop culture equation. It used to be like, um, who, who was the first big coaching tree? Was what's his name in San Francisco, right? Bill um, Walsh. Yeah. Bill Walsh's coaching tree. Like, there's a Greg Popovich are, coaching tree. There's like, yeah, it's basically a coach, and all of his assistants go on to become coaches, and they have coaches, but you can trace all the strategy back up to one person. But also with things that they learned, and then they 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 iterated on, or evolved, or put their own spin on, or they it was this plus this after a while, and it's kind of fun and exciting, and and often in in, in sports it can also be a shorthand for like if it's Popovich, like doing things the right way or being decent. And, and, and that's a lot of high-minded stuff. It's not necessarily relevant to, to art, whether we love the people or not. Um, although in this case, I think, I think that we do. But what I, what I really love about this, and I don't, mean, I don't mean this to be a big up or to slight either Damon or Patrick, but it, it reminds me of very specific examples of like, like take Steph Curry and his father, Dell, was also a basketball player and a very good one and good at shooting. And you can see... What it you can when you see Steph Curry play, you can see parts of his father's game, and you can see also like the, getting the reps from a young age and seeing the game and that sort of court vision, right? Like you can infer it anyway. I'm not exactly an expert on this stuff. This is not to suggest that Patrick is Damon's son or child. They can work that that themselves in therapy or Zoom on a Zoom call or whatever. It's just that it's rare that you get to see like maybe some shimmy moves in the paint in a script sense, you know, or a way to approach something. I feel like you can see the family tree here yeah. in the best possible way. So when episode two ended, I was like, oh, damn, great. Okay, so it's year 20 now. And I, and I think I had sort of condensed whispers I'd heard about the show. I think a long time ago, Patrick had been like, don't worry, it's just the first one you're going to have trouble with. Um, so I, I thought we were now just with the symphony going forward. I didn't realize at this point in the shows, uh, in my experience with the show, that we were going back again. Yeah. So all of a sudden so- we're going back. And I'm like, wait, what? Little did I know what we were in for. It's interesting that you, you know, I'm glad you brought up this coaching tree and the, and the connection to Lindelof and to somewhat to even going back to Lost because I wouldn't say the third episode, Hurricane, is as good as the constant. But it's not not like that <laughs> I far know. away from being the constant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what's amazing, and this is how TV has changed over the last 15 years or whatever it's been, uh, the constant works because you had spent however many hours knowing what Desmond was doing, you know, like what did that or trying to figure out who Desmond was and what was driving him and all these other tertiary characters around that, that story. We have spent about 10 minutes with the Gael Garcia Bernal's character in the first episode. Mm-hmm. We have not met. I think we meet Miranda briefly, briefly. And we have not met Tim Simons' character, and we have not met Miranda's boss, and all these other things. I love Miranda's boss. And then at the end of the episode, you're like, these are the five most important people in my life. 
You know, you like you just get through and you're just like, I just lived an entire lifetime of experience with these people. I, I can't stress this enough. It's not it's not necessarily that this is the hardest thing to do in TV screenwriting, although it might be. It might just be that when it's done well, it's my favorite thing to see, which is the incredible trick, frankly, although it's not a trick, it's skill of taking an hour-long episode. And by the way, kudos to Patrick and Station Eleven. The episodes aren't an hour. We're raving about it. The episodes are 46 minutes max. HBO max to you. (laughs) That is how you do it. But so to take that much screen time, you start from zero. You start with a, a new context, a new setting, a new time period. And as you, and, and new characters, new community, new conflicts. And you get through them with that beautiful grace and economy so that by the end of it, to your point, Chris, you're like, I've never cared about anyone more. And I'm completely suffused with the lived emotional experience of these made up people. And it happens again and again. So we're going to talk specifically now about episode three. But the only thing I'll say going forward is I had a similar experience with episode four. And I a million percent had it with episode five. There are more delights to come. But in this case, it feels epic in my mind to talk about this episode from where it, from where it begins to where it ends up. And, I, and, and all I think the we'll have like a, I'm going to need to have like a separate 55 minute conversation with Tim Simons about uh, his character's golf uh, golf game. And as somebody who maybe, you know, for all of the things where I'd be like, Perhaps I would be the leader who rises in the apocalypse. I think I actually would love to play nine holes, <laughs> just like get nine holes in in a quick muni somewhere. Um, he's great in this, and he brings a completely different energy. But I thought we could start by talking about, you know, in the second episode they're doing Hamlet, in the third episode Lander is getting ready to do Lear, or he, they meet in two thousand and five. By two thousand twenty, when he and Miranda have their last moments together, he's about to do Lear. He, you know, they have already gone yep. through an entire cycle of meeting, being with one another, having an acrimonious breakup, and then she comes back to see him one last time. What she doesn't know is one last time, but it is a last time. And Patrick's just like throwing texts out, out at us now because yeah, yeah. Um, there's a moment where Arthur and Clark, his friend Clark, who they've they've just met Miranda and they're talking played about by, played by David Wilmot, genius. Yeah. And they're talking about, you know, do, doing productions together before and how they played Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And this whole joke, which also happens in Hamlet, which is which one of you is which. And he's like, well, we're interchangeable. And in this episode, you know, Miranda's Hamlet. <laughs> you know, like yeah, in this episode. It's her story. Yeah. It's like mm-hmm. everybody's life in everybody's life. They're Hamlet. And they have their buddies and they mm-hmm. have their, their their stuff with their dad and their stuff with their mom and their stuff with their partner. And, and, and it feels like everyone's conspiring against you. Exactly. And so I thought that this episode was remarkable for a number of different reasons. But one of the most is that the idea that you are, the part that you're playing somehow gives your life meaning. You know what I mean? Like, and, and not just in like a I'm acting way, but in the... When I'm with you, you and I have a dynamic that is set and you and I have an experience with one another that is the experience that only you and I understand but is completely different from, you know, my experience of our relationship is different than your experience of our relationship. And it, it's... You know, of our relationship. That's because well, you're, you're... Maybe we're you're, two you're, only you're, children you're, you're, and we're like, no, I'm fucking Hamlet. But like... You it, know, and also, like, yeah, you're seething with quiet resentment, but otherwise yeah. it's, it's, it's the same. Um, it's not just that the part that we're cast in, you know, defines us. It's also 
the roles that we assign to ourselves. Because one of the low-key fascinating things about this episode to me was the role that work plays in Miranda's life. And we don't know a lot about her her life before she came onto the stage. She, she if joins you will. this logistics company. Yeah. Or, or, or she comes onto the stage with Arthur, right? right. Uh, we don't know. Again, Danielle Deadwell's performance gives us so much in the way she carries herself, in the way that she holds her body when she's both younger and the older versions of her. I mean, it's really, it is a stunning performance. But the role work plays for her and the two types of work, the personal mm -hmm. work, which is this graphic novel, which consumes her. And, and by the way, sidebar, of all the shows I watched over the last year, where the plot was driven by a mysteriously powerful comic book, I preferred Station Eleven to Utopia. Um, that's just that's just my personal. I, I, I'm thrilled for the role comic books play in our culture, but I preferred this one. Um, from that work that she does, that is so essential to her, though we don't yet understand why. That when it is made public in a sort of tawdry way, when Arthur has admits or it slips out that he has shown it to Caitlin Fitzgerald's character with whom he's having an affair. Um, Miranda burns down the studio and all of her work in it rather than be exposed in that way to the logistics company, right? And and what that job and her devotion to it brings to her life in terms of structure or, or importance, you know, it's a recurring theme because in the pilot, I think, when we first kind of see Clark and he's getting the news about Arthur's death, there's that, there's a kind of a, a, a tender moment, a, mm -hmm. a charged moment, but it, ultimately within the context of one episode, a, a throwaway moment. This is a small, it's not a spoiler to say, it's not a spoiler moment because all these people's lives matter in the totality. But a moment with him and his partner where he's just like, one of them is like, don't go. And Clark's like, I have to go. Mm -hmm. Who said you have to? It's all a choice, you know? And that's a similar, that's an echo of what Miranda does when she gets off the plane in Chicago, she interacts with Arthur, and then she gets right back on a plane um, for a very, very doomed uh, business meeting yeah. with some, some Chinese executives. To your executives. point, isn't that exactly what her boss is telling her in the beginning when he's like, what do you think logistics is? And she's like, oh, yes. it's the path things take to, to get where they're going. And he's like, no, it's the right path. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, could, whatever it might that path be the wrong be. path, but it is the right path. Whatever you chose was the thing that was you, you is the thing that you chose and, that makes it right, you know? And, and, and we end up in that wonderful place for drama to be where it faints in the direction it faints spelled not the same way that it would be if when it's Miranda falling down the dock after she gets the news about Arthur's death it faints in the direction of being a completely different show there's a moment when she's escaping Singapore with a you know with like a, a, a like a monkey's paw rabbit's foot like doesn't even who knows like a collection of like keys and instructions and she's going to be at sea for a year and all the stuff and you're like oh and my brain went there I was like great and maybe that's some of the leftovers energy coming in where anything could be anything. And it was totally thrilling when it could be. But I was like, okay, yeah, I'm, in, I'm with this. So episode seven is going to be Miranda in a boat for a year. Like I've watched that show and I was only 30 minutes into knowing the character. But it, so it gives us that sense of excitement and possibility, but also keeps us grounded in the fact that for as much as this episode ends with what might be a hallucination or dream vision of a spaceman, it's ultimately about these, you know, like all good shows, about broken people making the only emotional choices that are plausible to them in the moment. She can't do that. Right. And she doesn't. There's a line in 
there's basically this anxiety throughout this this episode about whether or not you're living the, the wrong life. And and yes. I think Arthur articulates it. He's just like, I, I don't just, want to live the wrong life and die. Is that yeah. is that the, the the line from the comic book? Or right. the line that Arthur says that ends up in the comic book? I think it's the line that it says, because this, this comic book winds up becoming this, um, I, not a MacGuffin, but it is essentially like this thing that, Miranda in its creation as she's working on this thing and she, you know essentially from the moment Arthur and Miranda meet she's more interested in doing this comic book than she is in him but they still wind up starting this life together and throughout it you know he, she is obsessed with this book that she doesn't really seem that interested in sharing with other people because it's quote unquote not done which gets yep. into a whole other realm of discussion about what is art? Is it only art if it once it gets consumed, or is it art if it means something to the person who's making it? And you know, this idea basically that um, this anxiety, especially you know, since most of this episode takes place before they know that this pandemic is happening, but they still have this these anxieties about like, am I living the wrong life? In the same way as we're talking about, did you take the wrong path? But it's like. I, the, the the sort of regret that hangs over this relationship is is amazing, and it's made all the more so by the point where Miranda decides actually the mistake was maybe to leave, or perhaps we were already we always belonged together and we would come back together is the exact moment essentially when our, when Arthur dies. Yeah, and then all of this with this this again steady somehow tasteful backdrop of the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And how how it plays out in different spaces, and 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 what's what's noteworthy is that for all the different spaces we experience it, or at least experience it secondhand, that same kind of deadening quotidian everyday nonsense. It's not a magic like the world itself, day to day. The end of the world is not necessarily special. You know, you don't get to pick your spots or choose your moments. Just like Miranda can't have her final moment with Arthur be more meaningful or they could reconcile or they could gather together again, or she can't jump on a tramp steamer and be Jason Bourne for a couple of years. You don't get to pick your spots like that. You just have the spots you're given. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to say about three before we, we wrap up. I think that um, I was going to ask you if you thought that Arthur and Clark are named that for Arthur C. Clark. That was just a random note. I wasn't sure. That's possible. Yeah. Uh, Um, I like yeah, that. the the idea basically at the end um, where it feels like I think Miranda is having co- at least two conversations, one that seems to be taking place in possibly a future mm-hmm. and another that seems to be taking place very much in the past and, and, and one in the present. I, it's, I have to go back and rewatch, but this idea that time is collapsing and that we are, you know, if you have lived something, it never leaves you. So, you know, we often look at this as like time travel or loops and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I think that what this show is depicting more than that uh, is this idea that, you know, once you experience a moment, that moment is really with you forever some way or another. Yeah. And I think maybe, you know, we can, we can end this first conversation here. Obviously, this is a rich text. We're thrilled. We feel like Yeah, I don't think we've done a it. pod this long in a while. No, it's fun. Um, there's Kyle's like, I got to get to the comedy store. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> There's many more episodes to come, but I think you can hear in the way we're talking about this, why this show means a lot to us. And the next episode you'll hear from us on Monday is our annual, uh, the year in TV podcast with our, our buddy, Sam Esmail. And we make the case why we love station 11 a lot there. So I won't step on what we said in that podcast, but you know, there's a difference I think between the type of 
respect and admiration that comes from your head and that comes from your heart. And the best shows are able to navigate both. Um, I think that there are other contenders for the best of the year mm -hmm. and they're legitimate contenders and we love them too. And they're on our list. Um, but I think our both, not to speak for you, especially because I see the resentment really boiling over now, uh, now that I'm more aware of it, Rosencrantz is that, um, I guess I'd be Rosencrantz because <laughs> it sounds a little more Semitic. Um, this, our, our connection to the show is, is while we're admiring the technical uh, skill, it's very much heart. Yeah. And it can be messy and it can be disruptive and discomforting and surprising and unsettling, but it, it just feels really alive and it really feels like a tonic at this moment, both in terms of what the show is interested in addressing, but also our experience watching it right yeah. now has felt really, really therapeutic is strong but it's uh, you said it best so i won't I, i'll just repeat what you said i could be present with this show yeah and it's kind of neat like usually at the end of the year you're looking backwards and i think this is show is making me incredibly i weirdly hopeful so uh you know and, and looking towards the future and, and just really being appreciating uh getting to see it and getting to talk to you about it and i think also it's making you feel really good about getting on a plane uh, <laughs> And traveling in the holiday winter season, right? Like to there's Chicago? no. Yeah. Um, so we were produced as always by Kaya McMullen. Like Andy said, Monday we have the best TV of the year with Sam Esmail. We'll be back on Thursday to discuss episodes four and five of Station Eleven and hit any, you know, kind of light news that comes over the the wires over the week. We hope everybody is staying safe and uh, has a, a healthy, happy holiday. Since we'll probably be pre-recording a lot of these. And yeah, please watch Station Eleven. You'll you'll be glad you did. Take care of yourselves, Brainskies. <laughs>